church family, I invite you to open up to Philippians, the book of Philippians in God's Word. We're going to uh, focus on chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 today, but I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 so we get the context of those verses. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to focus our attention in uh, specifically on verses 6 and 7. The title of our message today is Humble Incarnation from Heaven to Earth. Humble Incarnation from Heaven to Earth. Philippians chapter 2. Again, I'm going to start in verse 1. This is the Word of God. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me go back and read just verse 6 and 7 one more time for us. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Let me ask you a question. What words would you use to describe Christmas? Somebody said, what is Christmas in a, in a word or, or two? What, what kind of words might flow into your mind? Like, do what? Jesus, yes. Yeah, so we got to say Jesus. Hopefully that's the first word that pops into our minds. But there's probably other words too, right? As we think about the Christmas season, maybe a word like joy. Anybody think about that word? That's that a lot of times a word that comes to our mind. Um, what about uh, lights? It's a, it's a bright time of year. Celebration. Uh, maybe food comes to your mind. Maybe family uh, comes to your mind. Uh, maybe the word advent or coming, the coming of Jesus. Um, maybe stable or manger or Bethlehem. Uh, maybe Mary. Joseph, maybe those names come to your mind. Uh, maybe Messiah, that long-awaited one. All sorts of words, I think, flood into our mind uh, when we think about the, the Christmas season. What about the word humility? What about the word humility? That's probably not the first word that comes to our mind. Maybe not even the second or the third or the tenth or the twentieth word that comes to our mind whenever we think about Christmas, but in a very real way, Christmas is all about humility. What is humility? It, it, it means putting others before yourself. It means thinking about the needs of others before trying to have your own needs or even more so your own wants met. Humility means 
focusing maybe more on the accomplishments of others than on your own accomplishments. Humility means refraining from just patting yourself on the back all the time. Humility is the opposite of arrogance and pridefulness and and boasting and self-centeredness. Humility really is the story of Christmas. During this Christmas season, I, I want to lead us real slowly through, um, through this passage of Scripture, specifically verses 6 through 11 is where we'll be this week and, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks. And, and I, want us to, um, I want us to see how um, it, this is a passage that's all about Jesus, and, which obviously Christmas is all about Jesus. But as we look at it, I want us to respond to this passage in the way that I think the passage is calling us to respond. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is calling us to respond. There's two ways that I think we're to respond to this passage. Those two ways are celebrating and imitating. We are to celebrate because of this passage, and we are to imitate because of this passage of Scripture. Now, the question then is, what are we celebrating and what are we imitating? Well, we're celebrating humility. And specifically, in this passage, we are celebrating, we're called to celebrate the humility of Jesus. If Christmas is about Jesus, then I think we ought to be celebrating. But we're also to be imitating. There's much in this passage that would lead us to say thank you, to celebrate in, a gr- most, in the grandest way we can who Christ is and what he has done. But we're also then to Not just stop with a party celebrating Jesus, but we're to celebrate by imitating what he did when he came to this earth. Specifically, his act, or we can say his acts, because there's lots of ways that he displayed humility. We can call this Christmas series Celebrating and Imitating Humility. Let me give you kind of a main idea statement for this entire passage, and we're going to come back to it um, uh, several times throughout this Christmas season. Church family, we should celebrate the coming of Jesus by imitating the humility that he displayed through his incarnation, his crucifixion, and his exaltation. His incarnation, his crucifixion, and his exaltation. Those last three words are the the order that we see in this passage of how Jesus is celebrated, and it's the order we see in which Jesus is held up as an example of, of humility for us to follow. And so that's going to kind of serve as our outline for today and the next couple of weeks. Incarnation, incarnation, crucifixion, and exaltation. So I want us to journey through this passage together real slowly um, this Christmas season with this desire. And I want you to have this prayer in your heart. Lord, as we look at this passage of Scripture, help it to lead me to celebrate and to imitate the humility of Christ. Now, we're looking at a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippi was a a real city. It was an important port city in the Roman Empire. Paul traveled there on a second missionary journey, and uh, he he shared the gospel. Uh, He planted a church. If you want to read about his time in Philippi, you can go to Acts chapter 16 maybe this week and read about um, his time there. But now he's writing a letter back to the church at Philippi. You can look at chapter 1, verse 1. And see that he's writing to the saints, his word for the, the members there in the church. And, um, and then he also addresses it to the overseers, there's a group of pastors, elders in that church. And he addresses it also to the deacons there in the church. And so it's very much a, a letter going to a, a church 
here in the city of Philippi. And Paul writes this letter to encourage the Philippians, one, to joyfully press on in their faith. To joyfully press on in their faith. He also writes um, to encourage them and exhort them to remain unified as the people of God. There was apparently some division that had crept in to the, um, to the church here in Philippi. And, um, and that's not good. And Paul wants that division to, repl- to be replaced with a loving unity. He wants them to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mission to which he's called them. Um, and so he calls the believers in chapter 2 to live with humility. Well, why would he do that? Why doesn't he just say, you need to be unified? Well, because Paul knows, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that un- unity is not going to happen unless there's humility. Humility in our hearts is going to serve as a foundation for unity among us as the body of Christ. For instance, if you put a bunch of prideful, arrogant people in a room and tell them to do something, they're not going to get it done. You know what they're going to do? They're going to fight the whole time because they're going to be arguing, saying, my way's best, no, my way's best, no, my way's best, no, my way's best. But there's this grand mission that God's called the church to, and we've got to be unified around it, but we're not going to be unified unless there's humility in our hearts. And so Paul, wanting the church to be unified, calls them to humility. That's the foundation of that. So look back at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul is trying to encourage them. He says, listen, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, in other words, if you're Christians, if you have Jesus, any affection and sympathy, then then please complete my joy by being of the same mind. That word same, he's talking about being unified. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, arrogance, pride, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. There's that definition of humility. In verse 4, another definition of humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Get your eyes off of just me, myself, and I. And look around you at, the, at your church family and, and look to their interests. Have humility. We see Paul's call to humility. But then he gives them an example of humility to follow. It's always helpful when we have an example. When somebody says, you need to, you need to do this or live this way. And let me show you what that looks like. And that's what Paul does in the remainder of this passage. And the example of humility he gives is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The bar is always set high, right? Christ is always the standard. So he says in verse 5, have, <coughs> have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind is he talking about? He's talking about the mind of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul describes Jesus and, and what is one of the hallmark passages in the entire Bible about Jesus. Um, obviously, the whole Bible is about Jesus. We learn about Jesus pretty much from every page of Scripture in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but there's, there's about four what are kind of considered hallmark, just Christological passages where it just, just, we just dive deep into who Jesus is in a, in a short span. And this is one of those passages. I would even encourage you, maybe this Christmas season, See if you can memorize uh, verses 6 through 11. Or maybe might might sound a little better if you start at verse 5, so you're starting at the beginning of a sentence. Maybe 5 through 11. See if you can put this passage to memory. It is one of the key passages in the Bible explaining who Jesus is. And it's focused on the humility of 
Christ. We want to celebrate Jesus. We want to celebrate what He has done for us as He humbled Himself. And we want to imitate this humility as we seek to walk as followers of Jesus. Now today we're just going to look at the first two verses of this description of Jesus. Verses 6 and 7. These two verses describe the incarnation of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, what in the world does that that mean? What is the incarnation? Well, that's a fancy word that refers to God becoming man. God the Son taking on human flesh. It's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And the humility of Jesus can clearly be seen in the incarnation of Christ. Paul writes in verses 6 through 7, remember, he's talking about Jesus here. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Brothers and sisters in Christ, these verses are a call. Verses 6 and 7 are a call to us to be humble like Jesus, who left heaven to dwell on earth as a man. It's a call to be humble like Jesus, who left heaven. Let's let this sink in. Who left heaven to live on earth as a man. This is what Christmas is all about. The Son of God leaving heaven to become a human. This passage says born. He was born. Born, a birth, a real human birth. He was born in the likeness of man. That's what happened in that stable in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. God became man. And Paul holds this up as an example of humility. And he says, imitate this, church. Imitate this incredible act of humility. As I said earlier, these verses are It's a hallmark passage. They're weighty with theological significance and with meaning for our lives. And so I think we want to think very carefully about them. So here's how I want to to kind of order our our thoughts around these two verses. I want to give you four statements, okay? And uh, we'll spend a little bit more time on the first two, and then I'll kind of give you the last two in summary um, towards the end. But I want to give you four um, statements to help us think well about this, these two verses and then to apply them to our lives. The first two statements are going to help us hopefully understand the text. This, the third statement is going to be sort of a summary about how Jesus modeled humility by meeting a need in our lives, which should lead us to celebrate. And then the fourth statement is going to be uh, how we are to imitate that. So statements one and two are, think, explanation. Statement three, think, celebration, and statement four, think imitation, okay? Um, I think that'll make sense as we go, and I think it'll help order our thoughts um, around these two verses in a way that's going to help us um, understand and apply them to our lives. Uh, So let me go ahead and give you this first statement. This is very important. Jesus, church, Jesus has always existed as the fully divine Son of God. Jesus has always existed as the fully divine Son of God. Now, He hasn't always existed as a human. He became human on that first Christmas, uh, 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 in that stable in Bethlehem. All right? He was born. He was human. But, But He has always existed. He's always existed as the fully divine Son of God. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was in the very form of God, or in the very nature of God. 
This is an incredibly important aspect of our understanding of who Jesus is. Friends, the Son of God did not begin to exist when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. The Son of God has always existed because He is fully God. He is the second person of the triune God. This is who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He has always existed. Paul wrote about Jesus to the Colossians, and he said this. He said, for by Him, he's talking about Jesus, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, that's Jesus, and for him, that's Jesus. So listen, if all things were created by Jesus, the Son of God, then Jesus is uncreated, just like God the Father is uncreated, which means he's always existed. He is the Son, not because he came after God the Father, but because that's his relationship to God the Father. He has always existed in that relationship as the Son to the Father. He's always existed. You say, Zach, why are you making such a big deal about this? Does that really matter? Does it really matter that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God? And the answer, and I'm not going to yell it because... I don't want to scare you and I'll lose my voice. But if I could, I would. Yes. Okay? Just pretend I'm yelling that. Yes. All right. Yes. It is extremely important. It matters. One, because if you don't believe that Jesus has always existed as the Son of God, then you're denying the clear teaching of God's Word. Secondly, it matters because if you don't believe that Jesus has always existed as the fully divine Son of God, then you're denying the divinity of Jesus, that He is God. He's, he's going to be something less than God if he hasn't always existed. And if you de- deny the divinity of Jesus, then not only do you miss out on the glory of what we're talking about today, the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man, but you're also left with a Jesus who is unable to save you from your sin. Because we need a perfect human to take our place, and only God is perfect. So if you don't think it matters, you're, you're mistaken. It matters that Jesus has always existed as the fully divine Son of God. 100% God. But maybe you're thinking, well, Zach, of course it matters. Obviously, I would have yelled yes with you. Of course it matters. I agree 100% with what you're saying, but doesn't everyone who says they believe in Jesus believe that Jesus has always existed as the fully divine Son of God? The answer to that question is no. No, unfortunately. Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that he's always existed as the fully divine Son of God. Mormons believe that Jesus existed, but they uh, don't believe that he has always existed as the fully divine Son of God. And apparently there are many other people who believe important things about Jesus, but don't believe that he has always existed as the fully divine Son of God. I read just this week about a survey which asked a sampling of Americans what they believed about Jesus. Christmas time coming up, good time to do a survey about what people think about Jesus. I want you to, I want you to consider these uh, three statistics. First, 80% of the people in this survey agreed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father. doesn't mean they trusted him for salvation, but they agreed with that statement. Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father. Great. Next stat, 72% of the people agreed that, quote, the Jesus Christians believe in was born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. In other words, this is not some literary 
imaginative figures, a real person who was born in a real city at a real time and place in history. Great. That's awesome. 80%, 72%. Now I want you to notice this third one. Only 41% of those same people agreed with this statement. The Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Did you catch that? Notice the inconsistencies. About three-quarters of the people believe in this survey believe that Jesus was a real person born in Bethlehem and that he is the Son of God the Father, but less than half of those same people believe that he has always existed as God the Son. That's not good. That's not good. Because Jesus must be God, fully God, if he is able to do what he came to do, which is rescue us from our sins. Philippians chapter 2, along with the rest of Scripture, reveals to us that before Jesus, the Son of God, became human, which was he, was, he was, as this passage says, in the very form of God or very nature of God. He was fully God, which means he is eternal. There's never been a time when Jesus was not, that he didn't exist. John said it this way. I like how John said it in the opening of his gospel account. John, the apostle, said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, before Jesus um, was Jesus the human, Jesus was the Son of God. And He had been the Son of God, Forever and ever and ever. As long as God the Father has existed, which is all of eternity. He has always existed as a fully divine Son of God. And I want to stress that, one, because it's essential when it comes to our salvation. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, something we can agree to disagree on. You have to believe that if you're, if you're a Christian. You have to believe that. But I also want to emphasize that because it's when we understand that about Jesus, that He is completely and fully God, then we're in a position to be blown away and humbled by what Paul is saying in the rest of these two verses here, by what comes next, humbled by what he did. This is the second statement of kind of explanation that I want to share with you. Church family, Jesus chose to lay aside his heavenly glory to become fully human. Jesus chose to lay aside his heavenly glory to become fully human. You see, if we, if we fail to realize that he is fully God in every definition that it means to be God, then it, it lessens the incarnation. But when we realize who it is that's being born in that stable in Bethlehem that's taking on human flesh, we realize this incredible act of humility. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God became man. Jesus, fully God, left heaven, took on human flesh. This is what is meant by the phrase, the incarnation of Christ. But look at verse 6 and 7 again. Who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. But he made himself nothing. Another way of saying that is he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's think through what Paul is saying here. Jesus. Before he was born as Jesus the man, existed as the Son of God in heaven. His dwelling, think about where he lived. His dwelling is in the heavenly 
places. He created the earth, but he didn't live on the earth. He lived in heaven. But this verse says that he let go of that. He didn't, he didn't hold on to it, but he willingly let go of that and made himself nothing. Now, some people use this verse to argue that Jesus is not fully God, that he somehow stopped being fully God when he became man. That when he emptied himself, he emptied himself of his divinity. But if that's true, then Jesus is a liar and God's word is wrong. That can't be the right interpretation of this verse. I say that, that if you believe that, that you're saying Jesus is a liar, is because Jesus made numerous claims of his divinity while he was on the earth. He claimed, Jesus claimed to be God so many times that people tried to kill him, the religious leaders tried to kill him many times, and finally they succeeded. They put him on a cross. One of their main claims against him was that he kept claiming to be God, and that was a big no-no. You don't claim to be God unless you're God. But Jesus claimed to be God. So if he's not, if he's not fully God on this earth, fully God in human flesh, then he is a liar. And why would we believe in him at all? He said things like this, before Abraham was, I am. That may not seem like a very significant statement to us, but when he said that, the religious leaders picked up, picked up stones to try to stone him because they knew that was a claim of divinity when he said that. He said, he said if you had known me, you would have known the Father also. Now, to know me is to know the Father. To know me, Jesus says, is to know God. What an incredible claim. He said this. He said, I and the Father are one. One. Jesus claimed to be God. Think about this. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. And, and remember what the response of the leaders, the religious leaders were, was. You can't do that. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. That was Jesus' point. I'm God. I am God. And so this verse in Philippians of Jesus not holding on to his equality with God, but emptying himself, making himself nothing, can't mean that he stopped being God when he was born in the likeness of men. So what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, I think it means that Jesus laid aside some of the privileges he had in heaven in order to come to earth and be like us. In order to come to earth and be a human being, to be a man. Think about it. In heaven, he shared an equal position with God the Father compared to the rest of creation. But when he became man, he stooped down and took on human flesh. No longer was he looking down upon humanity. He was now walking upon humanity as a human, as a part of the creation that he had created. It's incredible. Not only that, but he left the glories of the presence of his Father, where there's no stain or trace of sin. And he made his dwelling among sinful humanity in this broken and messed up world. In his heavenly dwelling, he, he shone like the sun in splendor and majesty and beauty. But as a human, the prophet Isaiah said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In heaven, he did not feel all the effects of the fall of mankind, but on earth. Prophet Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In heaven, death couldn't touch him. But on earth, as a human, 
the prophet Isaiah says he was cut off out of the land of the living. That's what Paul means here. That's what this verse means. Jesus laid aside the rights and privileges of being God in order to become man. He didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of some of those privileges of being God. He went from the one who was served by all the hosts of heaven to one who served sinful humanity. He went from sitting upon a throne high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, as Isaiah says, to a helpless baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a feeding trough, surrounded by stinky animals and stinky shepherds. Friends, that's humility. Want to know what humility looks like? That's humility. That's what Jesus did when he left heaven to come to earth for you and for me. He laid aside his heavenly glory. There's two times during the life of Jesus which stand out to me as moments where we get to catch a glimpse of what he left. We get to catch a glimpse of, of all that he laid aside in order to come to earth for us. One is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter and James and John up a mountain, and there before them, Jesus, the text says, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Listen, for a, for a moment, those three disciples witnessed a taste of the glory that belonged to Jesus, which he left behind in order to come to this earth to save us. They got to see a glimpse of what he laid aside. And then the other time that we get a glimpse of what Jesus laid aside to come to earth is actually a prayer of Jesus. Beautiful prayer. It's found in John chapter 17. It's often referred to as the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prayed this prayer the night that he was arrested. And I just want to read one verse for you from John chapter 17. This is Jesus praying. Remember, he's getting ready to be crucified and then resurrected and then um, ascend back to the Father. And he says this, And now, Father, he's praying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. Just chew on that for a little while. Father, Glorify me now in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's one of the most pointed verses concerning who Jesus is in all of Scripture. Jesus, the man born in a stable in Bethlehem, shared the glory of God the Father with God in his presence from from before the world existed. And that helps us know that not only did Jesus exist eternally as the fully divine Son of God, he also demonstrated extreme humility by laying aside that glory, emptying himself of what was rightfully his in order to be like you and in order to be like me so that he could save us. He stepped off his throne to become a servant, this passage says, to you and to me. He laid aside the comfort of glory, the comfort of glory to clothe himself with humanity, which can hurt which knows sickness, which experiences sadness and pain and grief and sorrow. Friends, this is the definition of humility. Jesus is the definition of humility. And now what do we do with it? What do we do with this humble incarnation of the Son of God? We celebrate and we imitate. 
We celebrate and we imitate. Remember, those first two statements are explaining what's going on in the text. The third statement is a statement of celebration. The fourth is a statement of imitation. Here's the third statement. Statement of celebration. It's this. Jesus looked after our interests by becoming what we needed. He looked after our interests by becoming what we needed. What do we need? We needed a perfect human. We needed a perfect human. And we ought to celebrate that Jesus did that. That He looked after our interests. He put our interests on His mind. And He left heaven and came to earth to provide for us, to become for us what we needed. To meet this great need in our life, which was we needed a perfect human. Jesus saw us in our need, and he acted in humility to meet that need. And friend, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we deserve to be punished by God. We deserve for God to pour out his wrath upon us. And the only way that God could, God could rescue us from his wrath is if someone comes who is like us to take our place. We've got to have somebody who's a human. It can't just be any human. It can't be a simple human because God only accepts perfection. And so we need someone who is perfect. We need a perfect human. And the only one who is perfect is God, which means we need God to become human. We need God to become man. We need the divine to take on human flesh. And that's what Jesus has done. He has become that perfect man that we need. And since God is perfect... And since God became man, thus we have a perfect human, we have a perfect sacrifice. We're going to talk about that sacrifice part more next week. But the sacrifice doesn't do anything unless it's a perfect human who is being sacrificed. We needed this perfect human, and Jesus met that need. He is that perfect human. He looked after your interests. I want you to think about that. He looked after what you needed, and I needed to remember who we are. We're sinners. We didn't deserve for him to do that. And yet he has done that. He humbled himself to meet this great need in our lives. If you've never believed in Jesus for salvation, then you need to. That's the only way you can celebrate. You can't celebrate Jesus if you haven't received him as the gift of salvation that he is. And if you have received Jesus, are you celebrating him this Christmas season? Are you celebrating him Are you giving Him praise and glory and honor for leaving heaven (coughs) to come to earth? Become what we needed to rescue us from our sin? The church family's passage wasn't written just for us to have a party. It wasn't written just for us to sing songs celebrating Jesus. It was written so that we would imitate Him. So we would live like Him once He has saved us from our sin. And so let me give you this fourth statement in closing. Church, this is the imitation part. We should lay aside our comforts to humbly serve one another. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because it's one thing to say, oh, thank you, Jesus, that you did that. It's another thing to say, oh, wait, I'm supposed to live like that, too? I'm supposed to humble myself? I'm supposed to lay aside my comforts to serve others? Now, we don't know all that was going on in the Philippian church, but we do know that there was some disagreement. There was some rivalry. There was some conceit. And Paul speaks into the midst of those harmful attitudes and says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who laid aside 
the comforts of heaven to become your servant. Brothers and sisters, this is a very pointed call for you and me to lay aside our comforts like Jesus did and to humbly serve one another. Listen, serving one another is not always comfortable. Serving one another is not always convenient. But serving one another when it's not comfortable or convenient reflects the beautiful humility of Jesus our Savior. And it breeds unity. It adorns the gospel for the watching world. And it is essential for the health of the church. And so, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you take just a moment today, even right now, and compare your treatment with others with the way Jesus has treated you? Compare your treatment of others with the way Jesus has treated you. Are you laying aside your comforts to serve others, to serve your spouse, to serve your children, to serve your parents, to serve your brothers, your sisters, to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, your church family? Are you, are we, inconveniencing ourselves for the good of other people. That's what Jesus did. So are we imitating Him? Celebrate and imitate. By God's grace, may we grow to be humble like Jesus, who left heaven to dwell on earth as a man. What a humble incarnation. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this passage of You of Scripture, of Your Word. Lord, help it to lead us to celebrate as we believe the right things about Jesus. That He's always existed, but He left the glories of heaven to come and meet this great need in our lives. Father, help us to celebrate that this Christmas season. Help it to be on our lips. Help it to be in our songs. Help it to be in our in our family gatherings and our celebration. Lord, help us to celebrate Jesus, but help us also to consider how we can imitate Jesus. Lord, humble us. Lord, if there's pride in our lives, convict us of that. If there's an unwillingness to serve others, maybe because it's hard, maybe because we have to stoop down a little lower than we really want to, help us to consider Jesus who stooped from heaven to earth. Help us confess that sin to you of being unwilling to do that ourselves for those around us. And then by your grace, Lord, help us to live lives of humility, humbly serving one another as Jesus has done for us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.